Is he worthy? He is. Amen. Let's go ahead and open up to Philippians 3. Thank you, pastors Ron and Jesse. As I've mentioned on a number of occasions, by the way, we're in Philippians 3.3, excuse me. As I've mentioned on a number of occasions, when Catherine and I were in Dallas, I worked a job as a security guard. And my job, if you've ever seen the movie Mall Cop, why are you laughing? If you've ever seen the movie Mall Cop, you know what my job was like. I had no weapons, I had no guns, I had my voice, as Paul Bart says. While my job was not glamorous, the place that I worked was. The name of the place, the name of the company was called, or is called, the Dallas Petroleum Club. And what this club was about, it was basically a lounge, restaurant, bar for successful people. To be a part of this club, you had to pay club dues, which were expensive. You had to be nominated by a friend of yours who was already a part of the club. And you had to have a certain level of income and status. And me working this job, I, I was, while I worked at a, 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 a job with, uh, I worked at a company that, that had quite a high status, I, I didn't. And I felt uncomfortable oftentimes interacting with with guests of the club. You know, I was just a rent-a-cop working around all these millionaires and successful people. But the Lord taught me a lot of lessons through this job. And as it pertains to this morning, the Lord laid up, has laid upon my heart this notion of status. To be a part of this club, to be a part of the Dallas Petroleum Club, meant that you had achieved in the community a certain level of status. This was a combination of job status, of financial status. You had to be somebody. Now, I don't know that all the people who were a part of this club, that's why they pursued this, but I imagine that some people wanted to be a part of this club for the status that it gave them. Now, the Bible talks about status, and the Bible examines status on a very different level than the world does. That shouldn't be a surprise to us. And what we're going to see this morning in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 7, we're going to see Paul's status. In the first century, Paul participated in something like a Dallas Petroleum Club. Now, this was in ancient Judaism. But nonetheless, Paul had a status. Paul was important. Paul was a somebody in the ancient world. But in light of Christ, Paul came to view his status very differently than how he once did. And what we're going to see is that Paul's understanding of his status, of his religious place in society, in light of Christ, in light of the gospel, what was once gain has now become loss. So that's where we're going to go this morning. I get this message from Philippians 4 through 7. Let's go ahead and read that. Though, my, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So this is our passage this morning. We're covering a number of different verses, but the idea is going to be about status, specifically as the sermon's titled, Status as Loss. Three points for you this morning if you're taking notes. Write this. This is our first point. Playing the status game. Playing the status game. Now to understand this this point and to understand this passage... We have to understand what Paul has been doing already in chapter 3. So look with me at verse 2. This is review for us as we've been through this already. But it's good to review to understand what Paul's doing in our passage. Verse 2, Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. As I've discussed and alluded to a number of times, Paul is referring to the Judaizers. And the Judaizers are an ancient group of Christians who taught that in order to be saved... Gentile men must be circumcised. What they were doing, what the Judaizers were doing, was was adding to Christianity a notion of works, specifically circumcision, identifying with the Old Testament and its law of physical circumcision. And Paul has harsh words for the Judaizers Judaizers in verse 2. And then in verse 3, Paul proceeds to give the reasons why the Judaizers are wrong. Paul gives four reasons. We covered those four reasons the last two weeks. But I want you to look at the last reason in verse 3. It says, Paul says, quote, put no confidence in the flesh. One of the differences between the Judaizers and Christians is that the Judaizers put confidence in the flesh. They see this notion, this symbol of Old Testament circumcision, as a, 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 a place on which they base their relationship with God. They put confidence in circumcision. But this means more than that. It means more than just physical circumcision. The Judaizers place trust in themselves. They believe that they add something to God's work in their life. And Christians, Paul says, are the opposite of this. Christians do not put confidence in the flesh. Christians believe that salvation, that the work of God, they add nothing to. That's what Paul is saying there in that last reference to put no confidence in the flesh. But then look at verse 4. Paul almost seems to contradict himself with verse 4 and verse 3. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks, excuse me, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul says in verse 3, Christians don't put confidence in the flesh. But then in verse 4, Paul does. Now, the transition between verses 3 and 4 is this. Paul is using a helpful tactic, an argumentative uh, tactic of argumentation in verse 4. What he's saying is this to the Judaizers. He's saying that Christians, verse 3, do not put confidence in the flesh. We are not supposed to do that. However, verse 4, Judaizers, if you want to go down that road, if you want to play that game, I can do that too. I can play that game as well. 
And we might, we might, we, we might phrase this, this, this notion of rhetoric, this tactic, as beating someone at their own game. Beating someone at their own game. What you do is in a debate or in a sport or in a board game, what you do is you adopt the tactics and the methods that the other person is using to defeat you, and you turn those against them to defeat them. That's what Paul is doing here. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if you want to play that game, I can play it. And you know what? I can beat you at it. We might understand this, this, this beating someone at their own game like, like this. So in our home, uh, we, my children, in order to persuade me, they'll make bargains with me. Okay? They bargain with me. And I, I'm okay with this. So at the dinner table, let's say we're at the dinner table. And there's bread. Every kid loves to eat bread. So I say to my kids, or my kids will say to me, they'll say, Dad, can I have some bread with my meal? I promise to eat my food. Okay? Okay. Do you give me your word? That's what I'll say to them. Do you give me your word? So I kind of press them. I'll let you do this, but you have to promise me that you're going to be faithful to what you say. Yes, Dad, I, you know, I promise, I promise. And so I use this, this, this statement, do you, do you give me your word? Are you going to keep your word often? I, I try to teach our kids, that's one way I try to teach our kids honesty. But as they grow older, what I realize is that they use that against me, right? So they'll ask me, Dad, can you do this for me? And if I'm in my normal state of mind, I'll say, yeah, sure, I'll do that. I'll do that in a little bit. And so then time passes, and they'll say, Dad, are you going to do what you said? You gave us your word, right? So they're using this tactic. Dad, are you going to be a man of your word? Are you going to keep your word? They're using the tactic that I use against them or with them. They're turning the tables. And I'm thankful for this. Parents need to obey the rules as well, right? But they're beating me at my own game. They're beating me at my, at my own game. And that's what Paul does. Paul, is going to, Paul says to the Judaizers, okay, you want to play that game? We can play that game. And I can beat you at it. The end of verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul can play this game of status. So that's our first point, playing the status game. Paul's entering into this debate. And then in verses 5 through 6, Paul is going to give us the reason why he can beat them at their own game. And this is the second point. The second point is Paul's status. Paul plays the status game, and now in verses 5 through 6, he gives us, he explains to us, his status in the ancient world, his religious status. Verse 5 gives us four qualities that Paul was born into. As a young Jewish boy, Paul was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was born into a privileged home. Beginning of verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. As we've discussed, physical circumcision was very important in the Old Testament. And Jews during Jesus' time still circumcised. So Paul is referencing physical circumcision here. But you notice Paul adds, tax this reference on the eighth day. He tacks that on at the end. 
And what that is referencing is that in the Old Testament, God specified that males, Jewish boys, were not only to be circumcised physically, they were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Eight days after they were born, they were to be physically circumcised. So Paul is saying that I was not only circumcised, but I was circumcised in the right way, in the right manner. Next qualification, of the people of Israel. There are various ways to interpret this statement. I take it as Paul is saying both of his parents were Jewish. In the ancient world and today, the word Jewish can have two different connotations. It can either mean ethnically Jew of a bloodline, Jewish bloodline, or it can mean a Jewish religion. Today, you can be a Gentile in one sense, in an ethnic sense, but be a practicing Jew in another sense. And in the ancient world, it was the same. Paul is saying that not only is he Jewish, in, was, was he only Jewish in religion, he was also Jewish in bloodline. Both of his parents were Jewish. He had a pure bloodline. Of the tribe of Benjamin, to be a Jew was to be a part of a specific tribe. It was to trace your lineage back to a specific tribe, one of the 12 tribes as a reference at the end of Genesis. That's what Paul is doing here. He's giving further specification of his identity. A Hebrew of Hebrews. This also can mean a number of different things. It can mean that Paul spoke and could read Hebrew. It meant, it could mean that Paul was, he did not have any Gentile influences in his life during his upbringing. It can mean a different, a number of different things. It could also mean that, that his bloodline, both his mother and his father, were Hebrews. But the point is, we don't need to be dogmatic about this. The point is, is that Paul was born into religious prestige. He had tremendous status. And then Paul moves to what it is that he himself has earned for himself. So Paul was born into a, a, a significant amount of status as a Jewish boy. But Paul, but Paul took that and ran with it. At the end of verse Five. As to the law of Pharisee, Pharisees in the ancient world studied the law and applied the law very specifically. They had an oral law that went, around, that went with their written law of the Old Testament. They were very specific and nitpicky about how they applied the law. But these Pharisees were revered within the religious community. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul cared so much about his Jewish identity, so much about the status that he had, so much about the Judaism of the ancient world that he sought bloodshed. He sought to kill those who opposed that. And then Paul ends with this statement, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is not saying that he was sinless. What he is saying is that before his fellow Jew for his fellow Pharisee, that he was blameless. He kept the law. He was consistent. He had tremendous status. That's what verses 5 and 6 are about. Paul explains to us his status, his religious status in the ancient world. And there's a theological point here that is very important. What we oftentimes do is we, though we don't identify with verses 5 and 6, a Hebrew of Hebrews is not immediately applicable to us. 
But we still find status in the things and similar things that Paul did. And in verse 7, after listing all of these attributes, Paul gives us the conclusion of the matter. What's the conclusion, right? So Paul's saying, let's play this game. I can meet you on your own terms. I excel you Judaizers in this religious status. And here's my conclusion. Verse 7. This is the third point. Write this. Status as loss. So the first point, playing the status game. Second point, Paul's status. Third point, status as loss. What's Paul's conclusion? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul approaches the conclusion from the perspective of his past understanding before Christ and now his post-understanding after Christ. At one time in Paul's life, Paul looked at all of these qualities that he had, as described in verses 5 and 6, and he looked at them and said, those are good. Those are gain. This word gain is an accounting word. Another way we could understand this word gain is assets. Paul looked at his qualities, his upbringing, what he had earned for himself. And in the deep recesses of his heart, he looked at that and he said, Those are to my advantage. That to me is gain. These are assets. These put me on a level of, the, of, these give me a level of footing with God. Before God, I present these to him, and he says, I approve of you. These qualities, these attributes, this religious status, Paul saw as an advantage. Now, while these qualities we don't identify with, circumcised on the eighth day doesn't have significance for us. Dear friend, the human heart never changes. The human heart never changes. There are differences between us and Paul, but there are also similarities. And this is the similarity. In all of us, in an ancient Jew, in a farmer here in Pierce, South Dakota, in all of us, there is a desire to find our identity and what it is that we can earn and achieve. There is an inner desire in our hearts towards putting confidence in the flesh. There is a desire in all of our hearts to identify with what we think we can produce. And we boast about this. We boast. We love to let people know of our status, of what it is that we've earned and achieved in life. Whether it's finances, whether it's a new boat, whether it's what our kids are doing successfully. We have this desire of boasting. And one way we strive for this boasting, one way it manifests itself, is status. Status. Now, status is somewhat like a passive boasting. It's something we might flex every now and then, but more it kind of fluctuates around us within our community. And we might not talk about it that, that much, but we're prone towards 
priding ourselves in this status and being known as somebody. It's being known as important or wealthy or intelligent or godly or religious. We have this desire. And I want you to see the connection between this desire for status, this putting confidence in the flesh, and false religion. False religion, as shown by the Judaizers, what is it that they did? They put confidence in the flesh. False religion and pride go hand in hand. Christianity is a pursuit of humility. Christianity, the calling of Jesus Christ, is a calling of one of making yourself little. Any religion that teaches you that you must add to the finished work of Christ, that you must put confidence somewhere in your flesh, is false. See that connection here between pride and false religion. And we have these deep tendencies towards pride, dear friend. They reside very deep, and it's oftentimes hard to see them. But we long to be known as important, don't we? We want other people to see our accomplishments. And when they see our accomplishments, their perspective of of us changes. We want people to know of our status. Whether it's religious, financial, financial, vocational, doesn't matter. But how does Paul deal with his status after Christ? What is his perspective now? Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I used to think that this stuff mattered. I used to think that this put me on some type of footing with God. That God looked at me with all of these accomplishments and he smiled. I used to think that it was gain. I used to think that these achievements were assets. Whatever gain I used to think I had, I now, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's perspective has changed. Paul's perspective has changed. What happened is that what he used to view as an asset... He now views as loss. And the way I want us to understand this word, loss, is liability. Asset and liability. Liability brings us down. I want you to see that Paul doesn't just view these things, this status, as meaningless. He doesn't say that. He goes farther than that. He says as loss. What Paul used to treasure... What Paul spent his whole life pursuing, now in light of Christ, is a liability. It's one massive, large liability. It leads him away from the Lord. It leads him down the path of destruction. His status, what he once trusted in, sought after and put his confidence in, is now one giant loss and liability. Now there's some clarification here that is necessary. 
It is not bad to be wealthy. It is not bad to have a good job. It is not bad to be popular or well-known. Some of you might be very successful in business and life. That is a blessing from God. And I think as Christians, we're far too, we settle for far too little. And we ought to pursue excellence in all that we do. And if you're successful, I bless God for that. That is from God. So I don't want you to hear what I'm saying is that money is evil or that status is evil or that being a person within the church, having some type of office is evil. I'm not saying that. What the human heart does, though, is it takes this status, it takes what it is that we've earned, and it said, this is mine, I've done this. And it's the heart posture of where we go astray. It's not the money. It's not the status. It's not the prestige. It's our putting confidence in it. And we're prone towards doing this. But ultimately, in light of Christ, in light of his purpose and mission, his value and his worth, is he worthy? In light of that question, our conclusion must be, Lord, everything is of loss in comparison to you. Everything. Verse 7. I count it as loss, quote, for the sake of Christ. When we see the goodness of Jesus Christ, when we see his infinite mercy and goodness and beauty and power and strength and faithfulness and mercy and kindness and gentleness, when we see him, what happens is that we choose to reject finding identity and value and worth in anything else. For the sake of Christ, we must count status as loss. And what Jesus forces us to do here, my concern for the church, my concern for the church is not that you would be out pursuing status at all and every cost. If you come to church, you have some type of sensibility towards the importance of Jesus. My concern is different. My concern is that we might try to have it both ways. My concern is that there is a tendency to say yes to Jesus, but also yes to status, to wealth to vocation, to perceived importance. And Jesus forces us to choose. You know the advertisement of Burger King. Have it your way. Have it your way. What a great advertisement for a business. Jesus doesn't say that. Following Jesus is not about having it your way. Dear friend, you must choose. 
to follow Jesus Christ, to say yes to him, demands by consequence that we say no to us. And that us that Paul is talking about here is status. If you try to hold on to Jesus while also trying to hold on to your perceived importance, you are in a bad place. To be a Christian, to be a Christian, to say yes to Jesus necessitates saying no to status, saying no to finding comfort, identity, some form of salvation based upon ourselves. And I leave you with this issue. What do you choose? You cannot have it your way. Do you choose Jesus? Do you choose status or do you try to hang on to both? Dear friend, status is loss in light of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for Paul's example. And we thank you for the clear conclusion that in light of Christ, all is loss. Any type of comfort, identity, value, worth that we find in ourselves, Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would lead us to repentance. Father, I pray pray that our, our motto towards Jesus, our thoughts about him would, well, we can have it our way. Father, Jesus forces us to choose. And I pray, Lord, that by the Spirit that we would choose as individuals and as a church. We would say no to self, no to status, and we would say yes to Jesus. That with, with Paul, with Paul, that we would agree with him that any perceived notion of self-value and self-worth that we think we have is a liability to us. It's loss. Father, lead us to answer the question, is he worthy, with a resounding and hearty yes. Jesus, you are worthy. And we pray and ask for your power and your grace in our lives. Bless this church and bless the work of the ministry through it. In Christ's name, amen. Please.